Well, as Pastor Nick said, we're starting a new series, not a weekly series, but as you know, Nick and I get to preach about every six to eight weeks here, typically alternating, and so what we're going to do over the course of about the next year is, is preach through the book of Colossians, and so we get to start that this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And, and what, we're, what, what, what I'm covering this morning in Colossians chapter 1 is it's something I'm really excited to preach this morning. It's something I feel really passionate about. It's, it's something that's been revolutionary in my own life. It really was the tr- when I understood this truth that we're talking about this morning, it was something that, that transformed my life and changed me completely. So let's, let's read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would take your word and plant it deep in our hearts, that it would uh, take root there and that it would, it would bear fruit in our life and would change us, change us and transform us from inside out. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would um, just speak through me this morning and, and would open our hearts to, to understand the, the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So with it, with it being a new book, I just want to briefly, quickly look at some of the basics of who is this book from and who is it written to, and then I want to ask a really important question all that, on that. So it starts out, Paul, it's from the Apostle Paul. Uh, many of you know who Paul is. Uh, he was a former persecutor of the church. He actually took part in the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He was there when that happened, and um, He's now preaching the gospel and helping start new churches, and this is just one of actually 13 books of the New Testament that he wrote. And in and, and, and chapter 4, it indicates that Paul's writing this letter from prison. In chapter 4, verses 10 and 18, he talks about how he's, a, he's there with his fellow prisoners and how he's in chains. So this is called one of Paul's prison letters. And another notable thing about this book is notice it says, the greeting says, Paul, an apostle and Timothy, our brother. So what's interesting is if you look at some of Paul's earlier letters that he wrote to the churches, it just said Paul, an apostle. And now it says Paul, an apostle, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul, what he's doing is, as his, as he's, uh, his ministry is, is, has gone on, he's raised up a younger man named Timothy. He's raised up another leader in the church that he's been discipling, that he's been pouring into, so that the ministry will continue on after Paul 
is gone. And that's, that's a principle, that's an example for us to always be looking for who, we, who can we raise up um, and leave a legacy in our ministry. And then I want to look at, notice who he addresses us to. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And so this is a big question I want to ask this morning and, and look at God's word to find the answer is when he writes to the saints in Christ in this city, who, who is he writing to? Who are the saints? What is a saint? When does someone become a saint? And so as, as many of you know, there's, there's, um, there's different saints' days. So November 1st is actually All Saints' Day. On, on Christmas, uh, people talk about Saint Nicholas, and then today happens to be Valentine's Day, right? Um, and that's in honor of Saint Valentine. And so husbands, by the way, if you were just hearing that for the first time, if you were unaware this morning that today was Valentine's Day, um, the good news is it's still early in the day. You still have time. And so you can thank me later for that. But... It, who, so what, who is a saint? What, what, what does it mean to be a saint? This is what I want to look at this morning. This is the conclusion I've come to from God's word. Is number, point number one in your outline is that in Christ, we are given a new identity as saints. And we being all genuine believers in Jesus Christ, not just a select few. So according to the Roman Catholic Church, they would say throughout about 2,000 years of church history, there's been a, about 10,000 official saints. And I know that sounds like a lot, but when you consider all the people in the whole world and 2,000 years of church history, that's actually not very many. That actually boils down to a very small, select few group of people. And so I disagree with this idea that, uh, that saints are a very small, select group of people, that they are just people who've reached a different level of holiness than the rest of us and that we should honor them and, and even go so far as sometimes pray to them. I, you know, I reject this idea because in Christ we are all counted, considered saints. We're all considered holy and righteous before God through the blood of Jesus Christ and we can all approach the throne of God through the grace of Christ. And so if you look at verse 2, I know what you might be thinking there. You might be thinking, well, well, it says to the saints and faithful brothers in, F in, in Colossae. So could he be talking about two different groups of people there? And so I would say, no, this is, it's two descriptions of the same group of people. In the same way that I would call Adrian, I would say she's my wife and she's the love of my life. You know, I'm talking about the same person, and I better be talking about the same person when I say that. And so in the same way Paul is saying, I'm writing to you, the church in Colossae, I'm writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ there. How do we know this? In, in, in Ephesians and Philippians and 2 Corinthians, he also addresses those churches as saints, but he doesn't add anything extra there um, as a, a, and someone else. And so and, and in those examples, he's writing to the churches, so it's clear he's not just writing to a small group of people within the church, he's writing to the whole church and calling them saints. In Ephesians chapter 4, it calls pastors to equip the saints for ministry. And so again, I don't believe my job is to equip a select few, a small group of people, but it's the whole church. And so 
Every believer, everyone who's genuinely repentant of sin, turns towards God, trusting in him, they're, they're counted righteous in Christ. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and God sees us as saints. The word saints actually means holy ones. That's what that, that word means in its original language, is, is holy ones. And so if that's what it means, then either all of us are saints in Christ or none of us are, none of us are saints because none of us are holy on our own apart from Christ. And so I want to stick with me here. I want to read a few verses from the Bible to show you that this isn't just an idea here in, idea here in Colossians, but that this is, a, this is a theme throughout the entire Bible, that, that God removes our shame and removes our guilt from us, and he gives us a new identity as saints in Christ. So in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, when Adam and Eve fall in the garden and they, they sin for the first time, it, it, it says that they're hiding in the bushes and they're hiding and they, they feel ashamed and they're trying to cover themselves. And what does God do? He comes to them and he clothes them. He covers their shame so that they don't feel shameful and dirty anymore because of their sin. In Genesis fifteen six, it says that Abraham believed God or believed the Lord and the Lord counted, counted that to him as righteousness. So just based on Abraham's faith, God said, Abraham, you're now righteous. Um, and in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So sin is this stain that's on our life, or this stain that's on our soul that does make us unclean. But God says, I will make you white as snow. And so he makes us white and holy through Christ. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says that being found in him, being, meaning in Christ, once you have faith in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So when I'm talking about us being righteous in Christ, I'm not talking about us being perfect. I'm, I'm talking about the opposite of that. I'm talking about us being flawed people who are trusting in the one who is perfect. The, and the righteousness of Christ is given to us. And then listen to Revelation chapter 7. Just a beautiful passage here. Uh, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes so he has this vision of this great multitude of people from all over the world standing before God and they're clothed in white robes white symbolizing holiness symbolizing purity and righteousness before God and it says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb how did these people's robes become white how did God take uh, their sins are like scarlet and I'll make them white, of, white as snow. It says they were washed in the blood, of the blood of the Lamb. So it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, his death for our sins and our place that cleanses us from our sins and makes us holy and pure. We can, we can stand before a holy God and, and he sees us. Imagine this, all the sins in your life and you know, you know what they are and God knows them better than you do. And you can stand before a holy God and he sees you as 
holy. He, ac- he accepts you. He, he, he sees you as, as righteous before him. And I'm not talking about because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you and that you're now clothed with, with, new, with the righteousness of Christ. And so our, our right standing before a holy God has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with the perfection of Christ. And, and, and the only thing that we've contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Jesus paid it all. I want you to imagine something for a, mo- for a moment. Imagine if you saw this. And this comes from uh, Leviticus chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. So in Leviticus chapter 13, it's, it's right there in the middle of the, of the Torah, and it's these laws for lepers. It's laws in Israel for people who had this disease called leprosy. And if the priests examined someone and, and they were a leper, listen to what happened to them. It says, he is now a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean unclean and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease he is unclean he shall live alone and his dwelling shall be outside the camp so imagine with me for a moment if you saw someone who was formerly a leper but they had been cured imagine jesus had cured them and they're now clean but they've been living there. They've had this disease for years, and they've been living their whole life with he's a leper. It's on his head. He shall hang his hair loose. He shall cry out, unclean, unclean. He has to live alone. He's been living this way for years and years. But now in this moment, imagine Jesus has made him clean, and he's been cured. He no longer has leprosy. But what if you saw this man, and he was still with his shaggy hair, staying away and saying, and crying out with his hand over his lip, unclean, unclean, unclean. What, what, would, you, what would you do for this man? What would you say to him? I think, we would, I think we would go to him and we'd say, brother, you've been, you've been made clean. You've been cleansed. You're no longer a leper. This isn't who you are anymore. You have a new life. You can come inside the camp. You can put on new clothes. You can cut your shaggy hair you don't have to cry out and scream to people unclean 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 and this is what i'm this is what i'm trying to encourage us with this morning is that some of us even right now some of us have so much guilt it's heavy on us some of us have so much shame that you're living with because of your past sin that you still see yourself primarily as this unclean sinner and that's that's what consumes you as your whole identity and because that consumes you as the way you see yourself and as the way you think God sees you that it now affects the way you behave and we tend to act like what who we think we are and 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 who our identity is in and so what I'm calling you to do is if if you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ and you're trusting in him you've asked you've gone to the Lord and confessed your sins with a humble heart and you've asked God to forgive you of your sins, and you trust in Christ. You know, brother and sister, you're no, you're no longer that unclean 
leper before God. Just as Jesus cleansed the lepers and made them clean, Jesus is still in the business of curing sinners and making them saints. And as the scripture says, this is, your, this is now your primary identity is a saint in Christ. And unfortunately, the, the enemy, the adversary, the devil, Satan, wants to come against that idea in the lives of believers and, and break you down and accuse you of just being sinner, 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 unworthy, ineffective. God can never use you to do anything for the kingdom of God because he wants to keep you where you're at. So in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it actually calls Satan, the, 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 the description of Satan is the accuser of our brothers. It says, but he's been thrown down, he's been defeated. Satan, the great de- accuser of our brothers, and he's been defeated by the blood of the Lamb. And so the word Satan, the word Satan is actually a Hebrew word, um, Satan, which in the Hebrew it actually means accuser or adversary. So this is the devil's name. His name is the, the accuser. And he wants to accuse you of not being worthy to be used by God. And then I want you to see this picture, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I put this on the screen just because it's so rich if you can grasp this picture here. So in Zechariah chapter 3, there's this man named Joshua who's now been chosen to be the high priest in Israel. And it says that he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, which Hebrew, Satan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments or with pure garments this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is we we before God apart from Christ we do stand before him in in our filthy garments in our sin and in our shame and there is judgment from God for sinners who are unwilling to repent of their sin and who've hardened their heart against God so I want I want you to hear very clearly this morning I'm not just saying to everyone in the world you're perfect you're, you're just a saint just how you are stay how you are that's not the message the message is no, we are sinners before holy God, and we need to turn from our sin and trust in Christ. But when you do that, you don't have to wallow in your guilt and your shame and your identity as a sinner. You're now made new. That's, why, that's what symbolism, that's what baptism symbolizes. We're bapti- when we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is that old person, that old self, is, is dead and buried and gone. And that's not who God sees anymore. God sees the new you that's been born again and raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit, the new you who's holy and righteous in Christ. Does this make sense, what I'm saying this morning? Because this is so important for believers in Christ to understand, to identify. So it's interesting that Satan, he, he sends this confusing message to the world of just stay how you are, just 
just do whatever feels good. You don't have to change. Um, you're good. You're good. He tells the world you're good just how you are because he wants to keep people from repenting and turning in Christ. But then to believers, he accuses them because it specifically calls them the accuser of the brothers or of the, the brothers or, and sisters in Christ. And so Satan wants to keep you where you are, and God's calling you to see your new identity in Christ. The last scripture here on this point, 1 Corinthians 6, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers? None of these people inherit the kingdom of God. And it says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that describes, that's simply what the church is. It's, it's a group of flawed people who, who were sinners and now have been made saints by the blood of Jesus Christ and who are now called to live in that new identity. And the Colossian church, the Colossian church is an example of people who were doing this. Um, and In verses 3 through 5, it, it says that, Whenever Paul prays for this church, it says he thanks God for, for their faith in Christ, for their love that they have for one another, and their hope that is in heaven. And so that brings us to point two, which is that healthy churches are made up of people who have faith in Jesus Christ, love for one another, and their hope in heaven. And so I'm not saying that this is all that a healthy church is. It's simply this, but I'm saying it is at least this. It's at least a group of people who have faith in Christ, love for one another, and their hope in heaven. So let's talk about these three things quickly. Faith in Christ. This is a primary thing that distinguishes a church. This is what makes a church. This is why we're all here. We're, we're people from different backgrounds and from uh, different ages and different classes in life, but we're all together under the, in the same place in the name of Jesus. It's not a social club where we come together. It's not a country club where we all have the same interests and we, you know, we, we, we like used cars, so we all come to this. No, what, what unites all of us is that we're all here in the name of Jesus. And this is what Christians, this is what churches should be primarily known for. And Paul says, I've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. This is what the church there is known for. So what do people hear about us? What, what are we known for? Is it, is it political views or a number of other things? Or is it, is it I've heard that those people have faith? And Jesus, that's what they're about. And then number two, he, he thanks God that they have love for one another. And then in verse 8, the passage closes by talking about, he talks about their love in the Spirit. So this is a spiritual, this is a Holy Spirit-empowered, supernatural love for one another that's not common in the world. And this is how um, Jesus in John 13, the importance of this cannot be stressed enough, you know, there's 59 one another commands in the New Testament, meaning 59 times the New Testament says, do this for one another. 14 of those are the command to love one another. So it's, it's repeated over and over and over again. And then in, in the, in five of those come in the Last Supper. So in John 13 through 17, Jesus is eating his final meal with the disciples. This is the last conversations he's going to have with them. And what he says to them over and over and over again during that conversation is love one another, love one another, love one another. And they're asking about heaven. And he says, yes, I'm many rooms I have for you. I'm preparing a place for you. But he brings it back to love one another. And he specifically says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. 
And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what is this mark of how is the world going to know that these are truly disciples of Jesus Christ as if it's this community of people who love one another in the same way that Christ loved us, which means a supernatural, sacrificial love, putting the needs of others before ourselves. And Jesus says, when you do this, people will know. A couple weeks ago uh, on a Sunday night at a members meeting, I gave that the presentation about our time in Israel, and some of you saw the pictures there. Some of you saw these pictures of these new believers, these Israelis, and there'd be 15 or 20 of us crowded around this table um, eating meals together and fellowshipping together. And I want to tell you one of the, one of the primary reasons when, when momentum picked up and we really started seeing people come to faith in Christ was when this new small community formed of new believers who truly loved one another, who truly saw each other as brothers and sisters. And so what sharing the gospel looked like in that context was we would just invite people into that community to come to a meal, and we would share the gospel with them. And they would not only hear the gospel, but they would see the gospel lived out in front of their eyes in this new community of people, these people who loved one another in a way that they'd never seen before in the world. And so this is how the church can be a light in the midst of darkness, is when there's so much division and, and turmoil out there and so much fighting out there, if we can be a place of unity and of peace and of, of sacrificial, putting one another before ourselves, that type of love for one another, it is a light in the world. And lastly, they had their hope laid up in heaven. And I think this is why they were able to love one another so much. One reason why is because it says their hope was in heaven. So we're, called, we're people who are called to have our hope laid in heaven, our eyes fixed on Jesus at the right hand of God the Father, not our hope in all the things of this world that let us down, but our hope in what is unshakable. It's so easy to get distracted from that, but I'm the, the scripture's calling us to, to fix our eyes on Christ in heaven. So in verses 3 through 5, again, Paul's thanking God that the, that the Colossian church is, is doing these things. It has, they have faith, they have love, and they have hope. And then it, he, he goes on in verse 5 and 6, he specifically says that this gospel is bearing fruit and it's increasing in the whole world. And then he says, as it also does among you. And so another, this is another uh, mark of a healthy church is healthy things, healthy things grow. Healthy things bear fruit, and they grow and increase. And so he's thanking God that this, this church is bearing fruit. And then this is the last question I want to ask this morning. This is getting to the heart of the message this morning is why, at what point did they start to grow? At what point did this start bearing fruit? Why did this happen? And look at verse 6, towards the end of verse 6. It's been bearing fruit, it's increasing. It says, since the day that you heard it, it being the gospel, the word of truth, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So not just heard the gospel. Many of us have heard the gospel in this room. Not just heard the gospel, but understood the grace of God. And since the day that they heard this, not only heard it, but they understood it. 
and not, not just understood, they understood God's grace. Grace, grace towards you, God's grace towards you in Christ. That's when they became fruitful and started increasing. So ha- have you understood the grace of God towards you in Christ? Have you understood your new identity as a saint in Jesus Christ? So that leads us to point three, that understanding the grace of God and our new identity fuels, fuels fruitfulness and spiritual growth. I want to illustrate this to you. Um, has, have, have any of you, maybe the better question to ask is, how many of you have not seen The Lion King? Because there will be some spoilers here. But The Lion King is a very popular movie. It came out in the 90s when I was a kid. And most of you have probably seen it. But I want you to think about, what was the turning point in the movie The Lion King? So a quick summary. You know what happened. Uh, Mufasa died. Uh, Scar, who really represents this evil one, just starts accusing him and saying murder, makes him feel shame, makes him feel guilt. And Simba just runs away into the wilderness outside of the kingdom of light. And Simba's now living out in the wilderness. He's hanging out with Timon and Pumbaa. They're singing Hakuna Hakuna Matata, no worries. And so what, what Simba's doing is he's really just He's not living what he's called to be. He's, he's, he's living irresponsibly, and he's gone away from the kingdom. But he, deep down the whole time, he has this sense of shame and unworthiness to do what he's called to do, which is go take back the kingdom of his father and take it from darkness and make it light. All right, you see what's happening? And, but what's the turning point? Because there's a point when, when everything changes, and he runs back to the kingdom, and he fights, and he takes it back for the kingdom of light. And the turning point is that he comes to that baboon. I can't remember his name, but he comes to that baboon. And the baboon shows him this pond of water and says, who are you? And, and Simba looks in the water, and he just sees himself, and he hangs his head, and he says, you know, I'm nobody, and he feels ashamed. And then the baboon says, look again. And Simba looks again into the water, and all of a sudden he hears this voice from heaven, and it's his heavenly father, Mufasa, speaking. And all of a sudden he sees in the water not his own reflection, but he now sees Mufasa, the king, in him. And then all of a sudden the voice calls out louder from heaven, and he looks to heaven, and, and Mufasa says, you've forgotten me because you've forgotten um, who you are. You're the, you're my, he says, you're my son. You're the son of the king. And all of a sudden, the, 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 his heavenly father speaks from heaven, and he, he, in that moment, he gives him this new identity of you're my son. And all of a sudden, everything changes for Simba, and it's at that moment, he runs back towards Pride Rock, and he fights, and he takes the kingdom back. All right, do you see how this applies to what we're talking about this morning? Is that some of us are ineffective and and not living a victorious life for Jesus Christ right now, and you're living in shame, and you're living in guilt right now, and you don't think that you're worthy enough for God to use you for something great because you just see yourself as that leper or that sinner. And... God's word is calling you a saint in Jesus Christ if you truly trust in Jesus Christ. And he's calling you to live out of that identity, to understand the grace of God, and then to bear fruit and to increase. That's why I'm talking about grace 
fueled obedience to God from the heart. I pray that we would be people who live in this way. Jesus, because you died for me, I want to live for you. It's a transformed heart that wants to obey, that wants to glorify God because of all the grace that he's given you in life. And this is a principle throughout Scripture is that the truth of God's grace comes first and then all the commands follow. So in Romans, there's, there's actually 64 commands in the book of Romans. But 60 of those come in the second half of the book, chapters 9 through 16, only four in the first half of the book. Do you see why that's important? Because God is first giving, laying this foundation of truth, of who he is, of who you are in Christ because of the grace of God, and then now calling you to obey and follow the commands and live out of that. In Ephesians, there's 41 commands in the book. 40 of those are in chapters 4 through 6. So only one of those are in the first half of the book. Same principle. And then in the book we're, we're studying now, Colossians, there's 30 commands in this book, meaning do this or don't do this. There's 30 commands. Zero are in chapter one, so we're going to be in chapter one for a couple weeks between me and Nick. There's, there's nothing that God's explicitly telling you do this. And it's all truth of understand the grace of God. There's only one or there's four commands in chapter 2, but then the second half of the book, chapters 3 and 4, have 26 of the 30 commands. Do you see why this is important? Is God loads, loads his word with truth up front, with grace up front, giving you the gospel of Christ, and, and now calls you to live from that. The last story I want to tell to, to, to give us a picture of this principle, it comes from come from Judges chapter 6, the story of Gideon. So some of you may remember this story, but Gideon was, was the first or one of the first judges in Israel during that time, and, but he wasn't yet in chapter 6 when this happens. And so these people called the Midianites have invaded the land, they've invaded northern Israel, and it says that everyone, the people of Israel, they're scared of him. They're scared of the Midianites. They're afraid of the Midianites. And at this moment, it says that Gideon is threshing wheat in the wine press. Well, what does that mean? Typically, uh, they didn't have harvesters back then, so you'd actually have to cut the wheat uh, by hand, and then you would have to thresh it by hand, meaning you would shake the, the, the wheat or the, the kernel or the grain from the chaff so that you have that. And so, but he was doing that in the wine press, which is odd because that's down in the valley and there's no air circulation down there. Typically, they would do that up on a hilltop, so that when they thresh wheat, the chaff would be blown away by the wind and it would better separate. But why was Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press? I think it's because he was afraid of the Midianites and he didn't want to be seen, but the work had to be done. So the point is he's hiding right now and he's kind of acting like a coward right now and not fighting for his people who've been invaded. And in that moment, it's in that moment when he's hiding in the wine press, the Lord comes to him, and the angel of the Lord speaking for the Lord, and the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And so God, in that moment, calls him a mighty man of valor. Why is that important? Because up to this point, Gideon has done nothing significant in his life. He's not displayed any courage. He's not a man of valor was reserved for these Israelite men who were seasoned in battle and who had fought before. But it's in this moment that God calls him 
by this identity. And then after that, the Lord says, save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And, and Gideon even says, Lord, how can I save Israel? He says, my clan is the weakest and I am the least of my father's house. So his identity is I'm the weakest man from the smallest clan and, and God can't use me. And you see the point I'm making is that in that moment, that's when God comes to him and, and calls him man of valor because God sees in him what God is going to do with him because God says, I will be with you. I'm sending you and I will be with you and I will do this through you. So this is what I'm saying this morning is that God is calling you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to live a victorious life in Christ, to, to, to defeat, to fight and defeat sin in your life, to preach the gospel to your neighbor to be effective for Jesus Christ, to, to serve in the church here, to be, to be a good husband or father or wife or mother. And you, we need to do this out of our identity in Christ, which is that of saint. And then here's the point I'm making this morning, is until you see yourself as someone who's been made holy by the blood of Christ and you're trusting purely in the grace of God, you will fail at what God is calling you to do if you're living out of your identity as only a sinner. So embrace your new identity in Christ and live out of that. So who do you see when you look in the mirror? Who are you in Christ? And if you've never given your life to Christ before, if, if you're sitting here this morning, you're realizing, I've never even put my trust in Christ. I am a sinner. I need to be forgiven of my sins. Um, I'll be down front here in a moment, and I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. If you want to mark this day and say, today is the day of the Lord's salvation, I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ today. I understand that I'm a sinner, and he died for me. And if you uh, just need prayer, if you need encouragement this morning, um, uh, I'll be down here to pray with you and talk with you as well. But let's respond, to get, respond together through God's word, uh, through song, and um, let's pray that we would truly embrace that identity in Christ and live out of that. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your grace towards us. Um, God, we thank you that, you that you would call us your sons and daughters. That you've, Lord, we thank you that you've adopted us, that through the blood of Christ, all of our sins have been paid for and that we're now holy and pure and blameless in your eyes. And Lord, this, this truth is just unimaginable it's it's so amazing that you would do this for us but i pray for our church this morning that we would be people who live in this new identity and who live victorious lives and and push back darkness in the world in this world for the kingdom of god lord we love you so much and we thank you for loving us first and it's in jesus name we pray